Well, welcome. I want to welcome everybody to our modern service here at Salem. And uh, my name is Tim Power. I'm the pastor of Modern Worship, and I want to welcome you. Thank you so much for being here. It felt like church today, didn't it? It did. It felt like church. Uh, and that's not just the music. It's, it's all of you being here with us and in one voice worshiping God and coming together for something larger than ourselves. You know, there's, there's church is changing, and there's, there's lots of ways that you can listen to sermons. There's lots of ways you can encounter worship music. Um, great sermons, great worship music all over the, the, the web. And that's awesome. I'm so glad. I'm so blessed by that. But there's something about just being with people and being in one accord, seeking God's face together. That's, that's transformative. And that's really amazing. And that's, that's why we come here. We want to be part of a church. Now here at Salem, we have been doing a couple weeks of a sermon series called Won't You Be My Neighbor? If you, I, There's a possible especially for some of the younger people don't know who that guy who started that video out was. His name was Mr. Rogers, and he was a staple on television, children's television, for many decades. Uh, now, when I was younger, it was kind of uh, well into his several decades before that, he had already been on PBS and had been doing uh, a children's show, which is vastly different from most of the children's shows I grew up with. Um, so it was much quieter. It was much more contemplative. And they dealt with things. It wasn't just about explosions and loud noises and, and, and really funny gags. It was, it was a lot deeper than that. And what, what I came to find out was that Fred Rogers was actually an ordained Presbyterian minister. When he got done with seminary, uh, as usually you would go and you would actually become a pastor at a church, maybe, maybe an associate pastor at a church, and then you would start working in that kind of ministry, he was called by the church into broadcasting. I don't know of any other minister that has ever been called right out of seminary into broadcasting because he felt like he could have a much bigger impact sharing gospel principles with children in his form of communication. It's very powerful. Now, he, he started that video out, and that was an awesome video. Those were, those were folks from Salem. Those were folks from The Connection who we asked, who were the helpers in your life? I want you to take just a second, and we'll be quiet for a minute. I want you to just close your eyes, and I want you to think about a helper in your life, someone who had a big impact on who you became. We all have helpers, and hopefully, what we're going to talk a little bit about today is how can we be the helper? How can we be the helper? This, um, when, when we were looking at uh, uh, this Sunday, what we wanted to talk about, we were drawn to this scripture, this parable that Jesus taught called the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a really fascinating parable, and we're going to go through it a little bit. So Jesus taught very often with parables. There were stories. Here's the thing. They meant a lot to the people back then, and they, they, they drew a lot out, out of the context of the day. They, a lot of the parables still make a lot of sense to us today, but what I want to do is go into it a little bit deeper so we can understand some context, because what, what they would understand, so for instance, there's a lot of parables about farm farm work. Well, we're not farmers today, most of us, so, so that doesn't necessarily catch us in the same way. So sometimes it takes a little unpacking some of these ideas that meant more to their culture than it might mean to ours. So we're going to talk a little bit about the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm going to start out by reading this, um, starting in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. 
It says this, a legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, left him near death. Now, just, just, now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, the Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan, who was on a journey, came to where the man was. But when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them, to, uh, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him. And when I return, I will pay you back for, an additional, for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these uh, three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? The legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So a little interesting context here. This, this um, piece of scripture has kind of taken on a mind of its own and a, a, an identity of its own. When we think of a good Samaritan, would you say that's a positive or a negative thing? You really can't talk to me. It's okay. Positive. The very, very interesting thing about that is that when Jesus brought up this idea of a Samaritan, it was meant to shock his audience. It was meant to shock his audience. Um, and I think it's interesting, going back to what's happening in this story, Jesus is getting um, asked by a legal expert. Now, we know that he was a legal expert of the law of Moses. He wasn't a secular lawyer. He was a lawyer of the law. Now, in Jesus' time, because they, they were under Roman occupation, they did not have their own civil government. That would be against the Roman uh, occupy, occupying government. So they could only have a religious uh, religious courts. You see that when Jesus is brought up on charges, they bring him before a religious court, which the religious court then brings him before a Roman court. So they only had the religious uh, legal scholars, and they would they would try to interpret the law of Moses. Now, when he asks this question, I think it's kind of interesting. He asks Jesus a question that sounds a little bit like this: What's the least I need to do to get into heaven? What's the least I need to do to get into heaven? Now, that's not a bad question, is it? And in fact, there's some people in some ministries that have based their whole ministry on this idea. If you've, um, I, I went to one of the last Billy Graham crusades, and wow, that was a really powerful, amazing experience. Billy Graham's life message was, what do you need to do to get to heaven? 
And he would tell people, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you surrender to him, you will have eternal life. And that is powerful and that is needed. But I'm wondering, it seems like that's the question being asked. But it's almost like Jesus answers a different question. He kind of answers a different question. And I think, I wonder, what if this legal expert had asked a different question? Here's the question I wonder if he would have asked. The question is this, how can I please God? How can I please God? Now, maybe some people would say, well, isn't it kind of the same answer? Is it kind of the same answer? I, I don't think it necessarily could be a little bit of the same answer, but what I think is different is the idea of motivation, because motivation counts, doesn't it? The motivation of that first question, how can I have eternal life, is very focused on self, right? It's very focused on me. Um, and, you know, I think um, when we start in as Christians, we're very focused on ourselves. When we accept Jesus Christ, we come to this moment of conversion because we need something. Something's missing from our lives. And we hear that there's a Savior that can set us free from sin and death, and that's powerful. But it's for us. We want it. But as we mature, it kind of changes. Has anybody had this experience with your kids where uh, they come up to you and they say, well, for me, you know, as a dad, they'll say, Daddy, hi, Daddy, we love you, Daddy. You're looking good today, Daddy. You've been working out, Daddy? To which I respond, I've been eating more. But... I always have this spidey sense going on when, I, when sometimes they'd say that to me because I think there might be something behind this. And then it usually, I love you, Daddy. I love you so much. And then comes an ask, right? But then sometimes my kids will just come and hug me around the neck. And even though it might get my spidey sense going, it ends there. It's a hug and a kiss and an I love you. Which one of those two feels better? Yeah, yeah, when you know that it's motivated by love alone. And I think, you know, sometimes, even, in our, in, even if our, in our lives, as we follow Jesus, we can sometimes use our love towards God as a way to manipulate God into giving him what we want, right? We pray prayers so that God will give us what we need. We pray prayers because we want, we want, we want. But, you know, as we mature in our faith, as we spend more time getting to know God through the power of his Holy Spirit, by the transforming, by knowing his word better, by just spending time in God's presence, we begin to get transformed in such a way that we're not asking so much of how can I get from God. We start to ask this question, how can I please God? How can I please God? And that's where we come to this this story of the Good Samaritan. And I think that this is the story of how we can please God. So please, if you're hearing this today, I want you to know that you can find out how you can please God through this story. And there's, there's a message for you in it of how you can live your life differently. There's an interesting story. Um, a study was done at Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1970s where uh, they, they set up an experiment where they told all of these theology students, we want for you to um, study the, the 
Good Samaritan, and then we want you to uh, give a presentation on it. Basically, kind of do a teaching with the faculty and with the other students on the Good Samaritan. And what they did was they actually set up a situation where there would be somebody who would be blocking their way as they were heading to the class who was in need. Somebody like this, this person who was in need of help. And guess what happened when most of these students who were on their way to give their presentation were encountered with somebody who was in desperate need of help? Do you think that most of them stopped and helped? They're theology students. Shouldn't they stop and help? No. 90% of them walked away from the person that they could have helped and instead just went to class to teach about the Good Samaritan. It's crazy, right? But isn't that like a lot of us? And, and maybe not even finding somebody in a situation like this. I think about the fact that I was in, in college, and I remember sitting in um, the computer lab. I, I, w I attended UMSL for my undergraduate music, and I remember just sitting doing some, some work on a, on a, a project, and uh, a girl just on the other side of a bank of computers, I heard her pick up a phone call, and she just burst into tears. And then she was saying, what's happening? What's happening to mom? And what was happening was that her mom had had, had a heart attack. And she had just burst into tears and, and was just desperate. And, and, she, and, and, and I'll tell you, I just wanted to shrink up into a little ball because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. In that situation, here was my thought. Maybe you've had this thought too is I, I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to say. But here's this person desperate for help. And I didn't know what to say. And so I waited for somebody else to do something first. And isn't that the way we, a lot of us will drive past a car accident and we'll say, well, should I call that in? Should, should I stop? Should I see? Should I help? What, what could I do? But somebody else will probably do something, right? Somebody else will probably do something. One interesting thing about this, uh, this Good Samaritan parable is this idea of the Samaritans. Um, so and I, I like to be a little interactive. Can, can anybody tell me who were the Samaritans? You can yell it out if you know. People from Samaria, yes. Do you know? He said they were the Israelites' enemies. So they were basically people who were from, leftovers from the Assyrian kingdom, um, who, who had intermarried after the Assyrian kingdom had kind of crumbled away, that empire crumbled away, and then the Jewish people intermarried with them. They had some of the, the, the religion of the Jewish people, but not all of it, so they were considered heretics. Okay, that, they, they were the bad guys in the eyes of a lot of the Jews. The Jews would mostly try to stay away from Samaria. They would travel around it. You could get through it pretty easily. You could just pass right through it, but they didn't even want to be anywhere near them. So think about this. What, what Jesus is trying to say is he's setting us up to see that these religious people who keep on passing by, just like those theology students, would not stop to help this person, this, this Jewish person. Now, let me say this. The Jews would often refer, and we see this even in Scripture, they would refer to Samaritans as dogs. They would call them dogs. 
Now, I'd like to think, you know, in our day and age, we, we've, we've, we're, we're so progressive, we've reached beyond that kind of thing. We don't call anybody dogs, right? Unless you're a politician, then it's okay. But we don't tend to call people dogs. We, we, think, we think we've gotten better. But you know what? We think that we've gotten better in a lot of ways, but guess what? We still find our hearts turned against people. Now, maybe we, we don't say it's because of this. We don't say it's because of uh, their nationality. We don't say it's because of that. But we find different ways of being okay with hating people. We, we t- look at other people's political persuasions and we say, you're a fine target for me. You're a fine target. As long as you're on the other side of something, you're a fine target for me to dislike. And that's rampant in our country. That is rampant in our country where we say there are people who are other than us that we can dislike and hold over there. And I want you to do this in your mind. Think about somebody you have a problem with. I'm not talking about a people group. They were talking about people groups. Somebody in your life who is tough for you, who's tough for you, and put them in the part of this good Samaritan. And you'd be like, no, that person would never do that. That person would never be some, be, do something so kind. Jesus is trying to shock us into seeing this, into seeing this idea of our neighbor as being someone who you think of as the other. Somebody who you think of as unlovable. Jesus is saying, this is your neighbor. I can't even really explain how shocking this would be to a lot of people. But Jesus is saying, it's easy to show kindness to the people who love you, 